0: Well, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there, and uh, thank you for inviting me here to preach this morning. It's kind of my Father's Day treat. I heard a story about a priest, a rabbi, and a Pentecostal preacher, and they all were chaplains to the students of Northern Michigan University up in Marquette. And they would get together every week and talk about their ministries, and uh, one thing led to another. And one guy said, you know, it's really not hard to preach to people but a real challenge would be to preach to a bear. So they thought, well, let's try that. So they started an experiment for a week, and they each went out and found a bear. Well, the Father Flannery, he went first. And uh, he went out into the woods, found a bear, and started to read the Baltimore Catechism to him. And that bear just slapped him around and beat him up. So he, he grabbed the, the uh, holy water and uh, poured it on the bear, and he became as gentle as a lamb. Father's bishop is coming up next week and is going to give him first communion and confirmation. So the uh, uh, Reverend Billy Bob, the preacher, the Pentecostal preacher, he, he's telling what happened next. He says, I went out into the woods and found a bear, and, you know, that bear wanted nothing to do with me either. But I was preaching God's holy word to that bear. And, uh, you know, we don't sprinkle, we dunk. So I grabbed that bear, and we wrestled down a hill into a creek, and I baptized that hairy beast. And uh, like you said, he became as gentle as a lamb, and we spent the rest of the week in good fellowship, feasting on the holy word of God. They looked down at uh, the rabbi, he's in a hospital bed, and uh, his body cast got traction and IVs and all kinds of monitors hooked up. And he said, oy vey, you have no idea what tough is until you try to circumcise one of them creatures. (laughs) Well, I've, I've picked three really hard topics for the next three weeks. We're going to look at study this week, we're going to look at defend next week, and we're going to look at give the following week. I don't think any one of those three are as hard as circumcising a bear, but they are difficult, at least they've proven difficult for me, and I and think that they have probably are uh, difficult for you as well. And this morning I'd like to look at 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15 primarily, but I want to read the whole paragraph to get the context. Next week we will actually look at the context more in depth. We'll focus on verse 15 today. So if you would join with me and allow me to read 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14 through uh, 19. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who uh, confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Again, we'll look at that context more next week. But for today, I'd like to look at a very difficult verse for me, anyway, to apply and actually work out and obey God for. And that's verse 2, 15, Verse 15. And the, the slide up here, I've called it study. Is it worth it? Because it's a trade-off. Where do I spend my time? What do I do with my day? And is investing my time in studying the Bible, is it worth it? That's what I've called this. And the next slide should explain what I'm calling the first point would be the effort. And then we will have the experience and then the expectation. Uh, But the word that is translated in the English translations, do your best, is also translated in the NIV, is translated in the New English Translation or a Bible that's also available on the net, hence the term the net Bible, make every effort New American Standard says, be diligent, and the KJV says, study. But you get the idea. The Greek word is actually an imperative. It's spudasan, and it's be zealous or eager, take pains, and make every effort. In other words, work at it. That's why in the message summary, if you go back one slide, I have the term intense Bible study, because that's what... (laughs) is trying to be conveyed. God is trying to tell us to work at studying His Word. I don't know about you, but that phases in and out of my life. You know, I've spent a lot of years studying in formal education, where you were required to study. That really wasn't all as profitable as it might think, because it turned the Bible into a textbook. But just personal Bible study for the sake of knowing God better and having a closer relationship with Him so that you're actually approved by God, that takes work. It takes intentionality. You have to set time aside to do that. And that, to me, has proven to be hard over the years. I don't know. Maybe you're not in that situation. I hope you're not. But God tells us to do your best. Do your best. Work at it. Make every effort. Think about what that entails. How hard do you work at making money to pay the bills? How hard do you work at cleaning the house, cooking meals, doing all the things that we do in a daily routine? He says, make every effort. Do your best to study. Now, this isn't the first time that God has commanded us to take action, to be responsive and obedient to know His Word. The next slide will show one of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. He says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. By the way, this is written by Solomon. He's a guy that was endowed with wisdom from God. Specifically, he's said to have been the smartest man in the world, none like him. And he's the one writing this. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. God is telling us through the smartest man in the world to lay hold of this thing called wisdom or understanding. Wisdom is a bigger concept than simply head knowledge. It's applied knowledge. It's doing something with what you know. But it certainly does involve the rudiments of Bible study, of knowing the Word. The next slide repeats that and equates understanding or or knowledge with uh, wisdom. In Proverbs 8, verses 10 through 11, that same all-intelligent man, Solomon, says, "'Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold.'" For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I've highlighted those last couple of phrases in each passage because, quite frankly, I don't usually have that perspective. Nothing I can desire compares with wisdom. Nothing? That's pretty impressive. Now, granted, it's an analogy, it's a figure of speech, it's a description of, of value, but try to implant that into your daily routine. How does that time of Bible study fit in with your time of uh, money making or house cleaning or cooking or whatever your world involves? Make every effort, study, work hard at, do your best, because nothing can compare with earth. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. You know, I brought something in that's a big part of my world, and I want to use it as part of an illustration here. Please bear with me, you're going to get a painting lesson. That's not part of the painting lesson? Hmm. I should have thought this through a little better. I need a bigger table. The, uh there actually is a method to my madness here. Now, this, goes with this. this is what is a very basic substance of a paint job. Uh, this is Bondo. It has Hardener if it goes with it. I didn't bring that. That's $50 bucks a gallon. Okay. This is Primer. or Actually, this is Sealer. You put that on next. I didn't have a gallon can. I don't have this quart. This is $180 a gallon, and it's no good without the Hardener, which is about $85 for this bottle. Put that on next. This is Primer. This also is $180 a gallon. This is about $85 for the Hardener. You sand all this off, and it washes onto the floor. By the way, you put this on three times, three coats of that. This is the color. Well, this is the reducer that you use to mix this stuff up with, and it's $50 a gallon. This is the color. Two years ago, this can cost $531. It's red, and it does not shine. It's a base coat. It's just flat red. It looks good if you like flat. You have to put this on top of it. This is also about $195 a gallon for a gallon of clear. And this hardener goes with this clear, and this also is about $85 a quart. That's a lot of money. Some of you number crunchers out there might have figured out what the total is. I did not do that, but it's a lot. When you spend that much money, and that's my cost. I'm ashamed of how much it costs, so I don't usually charge customers any markup because it costs so very much. But when I do spend that much of their money, In fact, the most recent job I did, I put four gallons of this paint on the car. He's got over $2,000 of just the color on the car. You don't want to make too many mistakes. So fortunately, I went to school and they gave me this fine book. It's called Refinish Technical Information. In this book, it tells you about all the different products that PPG makes. Tells you about what you can put it over, what you can put over it, how to reduce it, how to put it on, the dry times, and all of that stuff that's very important when you're holding the spray gun, spraying $500 red on a car. Because you don't want to mess up. You know, I really don't want to make a mistake just for my own personal pride, but more so, I want to gain the customer's approval. I want to get paid. You know, so... I'm spending this much money, $2,000 in clear, and I don't even remember how much, I mean of color, I don't remember how much clear. You want that to come out good when you're done because you want to get paid, but you also want to have a good reputation. You don't want to have it all wash, wash off in the first rainstorm. I am seeking the customer's approval when I put all that on a car, and I worked very hard at that. That's, that's difficult. There's a lot of sanding that represents a couple of weeks of just preparation and painting. But you know what? God tells us that I should work at least that hard at knowing this book. That PPG technical manual is important. But you know what? All of this is going to burn up and just be a big ash someday. And what's going to last for eternity will be what I know about this book and the impact it has made on my life and others I use that to describe what comes up in the next slide because the expectation is God's approval. That's why we're to make every effort. That's why I'm supposed to work as hard at studying that book as I do a water sanding primer and, and uh, color sanding color and polishing it and all that stuff that I do to make the car pretty. It's, it's crazy expensive and I want human approval. But you know what? My life and your life is much, much, much immeasurably more valuable than any cans of paint and thinner and bondo. And what's more, this isn't going to last past the next judgment. But we will all live for eternity. And God's approval is what we're working for, or should be. Make every effort work harder at being approved by God than I do of being approved by a customer and getting paid for a paint job. It's very, very immeasurably more important. And that's what God tells us. We want God's approval. Now, what I have up here is we can know truth. See, I've mentioned before in a previous message about that uh, pastor's conference that I went to and the lead speaker in the conference sat there, and with every sincere sincere bone in his body, we were eating lunch together after he had spoken. He said, you can't really know if this table is here that we were eating lunch on. That is the current rage. It's old now. It's not even current. It's old now. But the idea is that you can't know what reality is. That came up with Kant back in the 13th century or something like that. All of that is heady stuff. You never think it's going to show up in daily life, but it has. And the way it has shown up is, well, you can't really know that. That's, that's, your, that's your opinion, but, but I have my opinion too, and we're both equally valid in our opinions. I should argue, or I do argue, that that's not true. It's a huge, complex system of Bible study, that allows you to be able to say definitively, yeah, I know what God says. And I would argue that that's a necessity because I'm going to be judged on what I know about God's Word. One of the slides coming up, which I don't want to go to right yet, is we're going to all stand before God one day and give an account for what we've done in the body. And I'm seeking God's approval. As much as I want the customer's approval, I want God's more. And if God is all-powerful, And I suggest that he is all-powerful, and he's proven it by virtue of creation. If he's all-powerful, it means he can do anything he wants, and he's proven it. He's created us from nothing, ex nihilo. And if God loves us, and he does, he's proven it by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. If he can do anything he wants, and he's not playing mind games with me. You know, he's not putting me here in this thing called life and letting me see how many rabbit trails i can run down and how many times i can ruin my life he's not doing that he wants me to be successful in my life he loves me he loves you he's given jesus to prove it well if he can do anything he wants and if he loves me and you then his communication to me is successful he has successfully communicated in this word and everybody agrees with that i I use this actually as official in classes if everybody agrees with that, okay, then why do we disagree about a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture? Uh, why do we disagree about whether you should be baptized to be saved, whether you should worship on Saturday or Sunday? Why do we disagree about uh, homosexuality, about any of the issues that are raging through our society? I suggest that if God's going to judge me and either approve or disapprove... He has shared successfully the answer to most questions. Notice I said most. I can't explain the Trinity. I can't explain the 8.5 by 11 page of verses that says that once you're saved, you're always saved, common Calvinism, because there's another 8.5 by 11 pages that says that you're kept by faith, that you can walk away from your salvation. I can't explain that conflict. But I want to honor God's Word. So what do I do? I say, well, I don't know. I'll wait and ask God. Because those are valid biblical statements that argue against each other, and I cannot explain them. I can work through a huge exegetical process, and it's actually easier to dissolve Calvinism than Arminianism. But we won't go there this morning. But the point is that the whole issue comes down to, am I working at knowing the answers? Because I believe for most things we can. Because God's going to judge you and I on what we know, whether we're going to be approved or not. I think that that's a a no-brainer. He wouldn't judge us if he didn't give us the means to know how to gain his approval. And I thought a way of thinking about that would be, think with me on the next slide and a couple more after that. People that we have the biblical record of that are declared by God to be righteous. They gained his approval. Uh, Noah, whom we just went through a good series with uh, Pastor Trey over, says that he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. That is eternal praise from an eternal God to a human being just like you and me. He got up in the morning and asked his wife, hey, what's for breakfast? He was the one told to take the trash out. He is the guy that went outside and everybody laughed at him because he was building a boat because of something that was going to come that they never even heard of rain before. I mean, he was the, the idiot of the community. But he was faithful and God calls him righteous for all of us to read about. Think about Job. He's the next guy up there. God says to the most powerful created being that he made, Satan, that Job is an upright and blameless man. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. God tells Satan, Job is upright and blameless. Wow, that's heavy duty. Job had every ounce of his faith challenged, too, by Satan. You've you've probably read the book. If you haven't, you really should. It would be an encouragement to you. In Luke, when we have, when Jesus Christ is brought into uh, Jerusalem, a guy there called Simeon. And it says there that he was righteous and devout. Again, this is God calling human beings just like you and just like me. They dressed differently. They had different hairdos. And they spoke differently, maybe but they were making the same choices that we make. The next slide has a, a list of Hebrews 11, and this is really encouraging to me because all these folks are mes- mentioned in there, plus a whole lot of others that aren't named. But think with me of who's on this list. Jacob, Rahab, she was a whore. <laughs> she was a prostitute. And it doesn't say anything about a job description change, but she's called righteous And you never see anybody thumbing their nose at her. She's in God's list of righteous, faithful people. Gideon, he was a great warrior, yeah, but he also made an idol and caused all the the Israelites to sin. Samson, he was a whoremonger. He he chased the ladies. David, he was a murderer and and an adulterer. These guys have faults, and ladies have faults, just like we do. But they're in God's list of faithful people because they obeyed God. They repented of their sin. They did what God told them to do when God told them to do it. Yes, they fell, but God restored them. I have fallen many times, and God has been faithful to me. I'm sure you have fallen. God is faithful to you. This list of faithful people should encourage us to go on beyond our de- our faults, go on beyond our failures, and trust God. Because one day, I hope to gain God's statement of well done, my good and faithful servant. Now the next slide will bring up that 2 Corinthians 5.10 passage that I mentioned earlier. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. This is Christians. All appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due Him. I am scared about what is due to me. I praise God that He saved me from a terrible, sinful life. But after I've been saved, I still have blown it. I have made wrong choices, and I'm sure you have too. But we're going to receive what we have earned while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, this is one of those things, Christ paid the price for all my sin. I have no retributive judgment coming, <clears throat> neither does anyone else that's trusting Him as Savior. So I can't explain what the bad part is. Some theologians that know a lot more than I suggest it's going to be like an awards chapel at graduation. Some people are going to get rewarded for their faithfulness, and God will just withhold the rewards for those of us that have not been as faithful. I don't know that, but that sounds like something I'd like to agree with, so I do. That is the uh, expectation. The next slide begins with the experience. Okay, what does that mean? It means that when I study hard... Yes, I will ultimately gain God's approval at the Bema, and if I die before that, when I go to see him. But also, I won't be ashamed. I won't be ashamed. And I will correctly handle the word of truth. How does being ashamed show up in our world today? I think it's when we're ashamed to say grace in a restaurant. I don't want nobody to think I'm a freak. That's old-fashioned. Eh? Maybe not doing what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is uh, doing some illegal drug, and you have the courage, the spiritual, with wherewithal to say, "No, I'm not going to do that," or any other choice that makes you different from the crowd. Not ashamed. And who correctly handles the word of truth. See, there's an implicit statement there. If you're correctly handling it, that means somebody's incorrectly handling it. Right? You got a right and you got a wrong. Do you have the spiritual wherewithal to stand up and say, Hey, that's not right. Or are you ashamed? Don't you know? Personally, This is just my opinion. What I think people do is, oh, that's a gray area. (laughs) You can't really know. I've actually had a denominational leader standing in front of the church discussing a very hot-button topic, and that's exactly what she said to the, the whole assembled congregation. There are good men on this side of the issue, and there are good men on this side of the issue. What should I do? And I raised my hand, and I said, have you tried reading the Bible? And that was not well received. But the point being that the Bible answers the majority of the questions that we encounter in our lives. Because God is going to either approve or disapprove me for the choices I make. I will have eternal rewards based on the choices I make. He's got to have done that. Or He's not a righteous God. He's giving me a judgment for something I can't know. And that isn't something that I want to buy into. And again, like I said, we're going to look at more of the context next week because God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. Of love and of self-discipline. What I want to focus on today is the self-discipline aspect of that, because that's what it takes. It takes self-discipline to say, "No, I'm not going to do whatever. I'm going to study the Bible," and that is hard to do for me. It's been easier since this winter of health issues because I've I have time on my hands. But but the point being that in a normal workaday world. It's hard to carve out that time, particularly if you have children, because the kids are also needing your time. That's hard. But God has given us a spirit of self-discipline. We can do it. It's just a choice. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. That is salvation from sin, absolutely. That's the saving faith of somebody turning from uh, their past idolatry or sinful behavior, turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. But it is also the salvation of sin from the daily choices we make. Uh, Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you don't know the Bible, God, and you're a Christian, you're trusting Christ as your Savior, you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know the Bible, and you're trucking down life's highway, and you come up with a choice of a sinful behavior or a righteous behavior, God will convict you. He will convict you. He's promised to do that. And as we have a history full of that, that promise being fulfilled. The problem is that it's kind of a vague rattling of your cage. <laughs> you know, no, I really don't want to do that. I, 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 can, I can cheat on my taxes. Why do I have this nagging feeling that I shouldn't do it? I don't know the Bible. I just have this uneasiness that's a convicting of the Spirit of God. If I know the Bible... Then I can go to Romans 13 and in my mind and say, yes, it says that God has established the leaders that are, and therefore I should pay my taxes. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. If you know the word, it's a precise, this is what you should do, or this is what you should not do, kind of a conviction. Instead of this vague uneasiness that you've got to figure out. Hide the word of God in your heart, that you might not sin against God. Now, The next slide, I think there are two points in human history, since the the existence of human history, that are absolutely pivotal in the use of the word of God. The first was, of course, Adam and Eve in the garden. You probably all know the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam was told by God that they can't eat from the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. And just like I have with Beth, there was communication breakdown between husband and wife because when it got down to Eve relating, she added, to the, to, the, uh, to the Word of God. But before she added to it, look what Satan did. Satan did the same thing to Eve that he does to you and me. He twisted it just a little bit. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Just tweaked it a little bit, one word. Now, Eve picked up on it, but she didn't know the, what God said well enough to be able to say it accurately. She said, we can't eat of it or touch it. And then, of course, Satan just flat out right denies the word. He said, You will not surely die. Isn't that what God does to us today? I think that is the first and the most pivotal, pivotal event in all of human history. The next slide will show us Matthew and what I think is the second most pivotal event in human history. And that one was Satan attacked or tempted Jesus Christ. See, because there was a lot on the line here. And Satan, and I apologize for all that on the screen, but I wanted to get it all on one screen so you can see the fact that the Word of God was paramount in Satan's temptation as well as in Jesus Christ's response. First thing Satan does is he comes to Jesus Christ with a legitimate way to meet a legitimate need. Jesus Christ, your God, you can turn these stones to bread. That's completely within your scope. You fed 5,000 and all these other people and had a lot left over. You can do this. And you're hungry. So, hey, since you're God, do it now for me. And Jesus Christ responds with the Word of God. This is the Creator, the second person of the Trinity, using the written Word of God to refute Satan's temptation. And he said, you shall not live on bread alone. Satan then comes in with the word of God. And that is an accurate quote of the word, by the way. What Satan uses, he will command his angels concerning you and they'll not, uh, you won't stub your toe. That is Bible. But it's out of context. It's twisted. Satan is using the word twisted to tempt the Savior. And Jesus Christ responds back, it is also written, which is, his response using the Word of God, do not test the Lord your God. And then finally, Jesus Christ used the Word of God the third and last time, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and Him only. And then Satan left. The point being that this written Word of God was the basis for Christ's victory over Satan. Hence, the importance of Psalm 119.11. Hide the Word of God in your heart so that you might not sin against God. If you don't know it, you can't use it. God will overcome that, like I said, with a conviction. But the idea is that since we have that opportunity, why don't we make every effort to study the Word of God? The next slide is the conclusion, my takeouts: Be intentional about Bible study. It's not going to happen unless you plan it unless you're a whole lot different than me, it's not going to happen unless you make a plan to accomplish it. So make that plan. Plan to study the Bible. And expect all of the excuses and the or, quote, reasons for not doing it. There's always something, always something, from the kids needing some attention to the car breaking down to you've got to pay your mortgage, whatever it is, there's going to be reasons not to. But plan a time and use that plan to accomplish your purposes. In the middle of that struggle, and it is a struggle, at least for me it's a struggle. I'm assuming it is for you too. In the middle of the struggle, know that there is a very positive and tangible result to your work. Just like there's a positive and tangible result when that paint job is finished and it rolls out and somebody buys it or pays for it. You can know truth. You don't have to say it's a gray area. You can say, this is what the Bible says about that topic. Now you want to be teachable and have some interaction because nobody knows everything, even the most intelligent uh, theologians don't know everything. But those guys are willing to talk usually. You can know truth and you can be sure that you'll have eternal rewards. Paul concludes this letter by saying that when he uh, goes to, when he dies, that God will give him the crown of righteousness which is not only for him, but for all of those who love the appearing of Christ. That could be you and I, if we fall into that category. The summary is important. Intense Bible study breeds confidence in your faith and eternal rewards from God. You don't need to rely on somebody else to tell you what you believe or what's right or what's wrong. You can know it because you work you make every effort you study you diligently pursue bible study would you pray with me please father thank you for your word thank you for your patience with me with each of us as we uh, seek to honor you to obey you to know you to live out your word in our lives i pray that each one here is trusting god as their savior I pray, Father, that if they are not, that you might convict them mightily and bring them to a place of salvation so that they'll trust Christ's payment for their sin. Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for saving me. And I pray, Lord, now that you might bless your word and draw us closer to you, allow us to honor your name with the lives you've given us. Thank you, and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You are dismissed. Oh, if you want to read ahead, read all of 2 Timothy for next week. We're going to look at defending the faith.